Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 as we continue in our study of Galatians. I will read the first five verses in about 15 seconds and counting. I like to hear pages turning. Galatians 1. Starting with the introduction. Oh, that's my Bible. 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given your Son for our sins in this present evil age, Father God. This is why we sing today, Father God. This is why we have hope today. This is why we have life. This is why we can face tonight and we can face tomorrow, God, and we can face the future, Father God, even with the greatest of uncertainties, is because it was your will to crush your son on our behalf, Father God. Your prophet teaches that it pleased you to crush him for our iniquities and the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him, Father God. We thank you that this was according to your incomprehensible will, God, to crush your son on behalf of your enemies. Who could ever have conceived of such a message of hope, Father God? But yet within it is our eternal life, our eternal joy, Father God. Adoption, redemption, our salvation, God, our hope. God, who is wise like you? Who is man to counsel you, O oh God? So we bless you today, Father God. Thank you for worship. Thank you for putting a song in our heart. And God, I just pray for all those who need hope in their hearts, Father God. Pour out your hope into our hearts today, Father God, in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Galatians, as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, anyway, we went through the introduction last week, is a battle. I don't want anybody to miss this. Without understanding these first five verses, specifically the fifth verse, you will not understand the book. If you miss the fifth verse, the fourth and fifth verse, you won't understand the New Testament. If you don't understand the fourth verse, you won't understand the Bible. If you don't understand the fourth verse, you will not be saved. We have a war going on, as I described last week, between the Apostle Paul and a group of people called the Judaizers. These were so-called false brothers. They were so-called Jewish Christians from the Jewish sect of Christianity. Understand something, there was two sects within Christianity. You didn't know that there was denominations 2,000 years ago, did you? But there were. There was the Jewish sect, the conservative sect, that was saved in Jerusalem. These were conservative, devout Jews when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and they were born again and the church was developed in Jerusalem. But they were still 
loved the law of Moses. They grew up under the law of Moses. Their history was the law of Moses. They were defined by the law of Moses and the temple and the sacrifices. And then Jesus came, the Messiah, and they believed that. And they received the Holy Spirit by faith and baptism. But yet there's another group of Jewish believers, and they were more Greek-oriented believers. These were more the liberals of the, conserv- of the Christian movement. And they were from around the Mediterranean area. And they got saved. And they were Jewish, but they were more Greek in culture. And when Paul came and preached the gospel of free grace, they loved it and they embraced it and they recognized that the temple was over and the mosaic, mosaic law was over and the sacrificial system was over. It's all gone. It's, on, it's all done. They, they embraced Paul. They embraced the gospel of Christ. They embraced the free gift of salvation. But yet there were more people in Jerusalem that didn't like this. They were called Judaizers. They secretly came in disguised as Christians to spy out Christians' freedom they have. Please stay with me. It might be a little technical, but it has everything to do with you today. And as time went in, wherever Paul went and he preached, this is Galatia, this is South Turkey today, Southwest Turkey. And churches started to spring up. They love the message of eternal life. And as soon as Paul left, these other so-called Jewish believers, these so-called conservative Jews, but they really weren't believers, they would sneak in and they would tell all the converts of Paul's churches that to really be saved, you need to be circumcised and follow certain dietary laws in order to be saved. Faith in Christ was not alone. It wasn't good enough. You needed to do these other things. You needed to supplement the work of Christ. Paul would have nothing to do with this. Paul vehemently comes against this ideology, this false teaching. As he says, it's a distorted gospel. It's no gospel at all. It condemns a person. So Paul puts on the boxing gloves and he goes to work and he writes this letter. He writes this letter to this church that he started, they know him personally, they have their salvation, they understand what they understand because of Paul's preaching, and he comes to them and he writes to them, and he says, listen, don't receive any other message than the one I gave you. Don't be careful of any compromise with the law of Moses. It's over. And that's what we have going on. It's just a little background of what we've gone on over here. I want to read just a couple of other verses here in Galatians chapter 2. I believe I have verse 12. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. That's Peter. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That is the Judaizers. They, they believed in circumcision along with faith in Christ. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves do you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid... I have labored over you in vain. You see, the Judaizers came and they tried to get Christians to do things to please God. You need a little more religion in your life. Just faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the freedom you have and 
The ministry of the Holy Spirit on a human heart that gets you to change from the inside out is not good enough. You need to do something. You need to have circumcision if you're a man. You need to, you need to dress yourself differently. You need to follow new moons and festivals. And you need to become really Jewish in order to be a Christian. A double conversion sort of. This is what Paul's up against. And this is what's in 2,000 years later. It still fights against men today. It is part of the human heart to think we have to do something to please God. And not to fully accept that our salvation fully comes freely through what Jesus Christ has done for us. The message of salvation never gets old. And to fight for it, and to fight for that freedom will never get old. As long as man is on this earth, there will always be people that try to distort the gospel of Christ. That free grace that we receive by repentance and faith in Christ, the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is freely given to us. Before we go on to set out on our study of this letter, we need to understand these opening verses. There's two points to be made. They are the essence of what the rest of the letter is going to say in the next six chapters. First of all, Paul's talking about his genuine authority as a special messenger of God. Namely, he's an apostle. What the word means is special messenger. The Jew, the Greek, that would have understood that. Paul was talking about his apostolic, prophetic privilege to preach for Christ. That God had called him specially to preach for him. To set him apart. Chapters 1 and 2 confirm Paul's call. For this is one of the slants that the false Jewish brothers were saying. They were saying that Paul's really an apostle. His teaching is false. And we know how this goes. If you want to attack a man's message, what do you attack? You attack the character of a man. Politicians do it all the time. They, 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 they go to the back door. They beat up on someone's character. And they say, well, he's really not a politician. He's really not a liberal. He's really not a Republican. Paul is really not a believer. He's not an apostle. He's not a special messenger. He's, he's an apostle. He's a self-appointed man that came and preached to you a message that was not confirmed by the Jerusalem church. And listen, we're here to straighten the whole mess up. And we're going to give you the law of Moses now. And we're going to give you circumcision. And we're going to give you some other laws and some food laws and wash your hands and do all these crazy things. And then you'll be acceptable to God. But you see, there's something about man that believes that. It's hard to believe that you really... Faith in Christ. How long did it take you to really believe that faith alone saves? It took me years. I say that I believed it. But it took me years to understand how much I needed it. How free it really is. And then after that, the change. What changes us from the inside out? It is the power of the Holy Spirit. What's attacking Galatians is not just free mercy and grace and salvation, but sanctification. What changes a man? People like laws. People like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I said, no, just keep coming to church. Keep listening to the message. Keep reading your Bible. Keep speaking to Christ. Keep confessing your sin. And guess what happens? Over the months and over the years, guess what happens? Life begins to change. You begin to become more like Christ. That is the message <coughs> that the New Testament gives. This is what the Judaizers hated. They disliked Paul's message 
This is what they came against to undermine the message. They tried to undermine the messenger by saying he was not a true apostle. And this is what Paul gets to right away in verse 1. He says that I am an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Before Paul uh, defends his message, he was sent to preach, like I said, he defends himself. To be sure, Paul's salvation was extremely unique. We went through this a couple of weeks ago. He was once a persecutor who is now a preacher. That is pretty unique. He met the risen Christ. <clears throat> God had saved him from a life of persecuting the church. He's transformed into preaching the gospel. He's used mightily by God. Uh, though he was not an original disciple, he didn't walk with Christ. He never saw the earthly Christ as far as we know. He did see the risen Lord, and that's where his call came from. That was the genuine credentials he had, is that he was a genuine apostle, and that his fruit were those brothers that were with him, the Galatians that were with him, people that he produced, his converts, were a genuine article of his apostolic authority. And it's important for us to know that. That the apostles' fruit wasn't just his words. It was the people it produced. Genuine converts. That's why we have this in verse 2 when he says, And who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers that are with me. These are Paul's fruit. It's different what the Judaizers would have said when they came to Galatia. When Paul says, greetings from God the Father, they would say, I greet you in the name of James, or I greet you in the name of one of the other apostles, or I greet you in the name of the church of Jerusalem. They couldn't say, I greet you in the name of God the Father. But Paul could do that. His greetings could be grace and peace from you, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was uniquely qualified to give that kind of grace, to give that kind of blessing. This is the authority he had. He didn't have the authority of man. He wasn't sent from a man. Men didn't send him. He didn't say, here's my letter from the church of James and the church of Jerusalem. I'm here to preach to you and, and tell you the good news. He just came and preached and people got saved. Miracles happened. People were healed. He was a genuine apostle. The signs of a true apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles followed him. He goes on to say, who raised him from the dead. A true apostle is a genuine apostle are those who genuinely saw the resurrected Christ, visually. Christ met him on the road to Damascus as he was going to persecute. He had a divinely unique call. His credentials are truly from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who raised them from the dead. And all the brothers that are with him are still. They understood who these people were. This was Titus, and this was Timothy, and Silas, and others, and they were with him. And the Galatians understood that Paul's authority stood on its own. His words spoke life. And that's how you can tell when a man is called into the ministry. You can tell a man is called into the ministry by the fruit that God bears through that ministry. Or anybody. 
And as we get to verse 3 over here about this grace and peace from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before, this is a usual, Paul usually brings a natural salutation in the Old Testament. It was a greeting. It was, how are you doing? How's everything going? And his usual way of doing it was grace and peace. But he did it with God's authority. He redeemed an Old Testament salutation. And he redeemed it for the glory of God. And the unique thing about this, he didn't come and say, I, Paul, greet you. As a true ambassador, he represented God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ bring grace and peace to you. This is the whole message of Galatians. The grace and the peace that God gives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul truly spoke as an ambassador of Christ. Please understand in verse 3 about this grace and peace. This was not just a formality. This wasn't, well, you know, you know, hello, how you doing, and uh, something we would do to each other. When he says grace and peace to you, he's saying, I constantly pray grace and peace into your life. Paul is wearing his heart for his converts. He's not just writing a letter and putting a lead head on and taking a template out. What he is doing, he is truly pouring out his heart. He is saying, let the grace of God be with you always. Let the blessing and the peace of God be with your hearts. He's pouring out his heart in this salutation. I really wanted to move fast because I want to move to verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. <clears throat> it's an interesting verse. And as I said before, the whole letter of Paul lives and dies on this one verse of Scripture. <clears throat> a matter of fact, Paul's whole gospel rides on this one verse of Scripture. The whole New Testament lives and dies on this whole one verse of Scripture, on this one word, delivered us from this present evil age. I want to spend some time on this word. Better translations use rescue. You see, the Judaizers would come and say, you needed to do things. But Paul says, no. Christ already did it for you. You don't need to deliver yourself. Christ delivered you. You don't need to rescue yourself. Christ rescued you. Why do you want to put yourself in slavery again to? Do you want to follow laws and rules and regulations? Do you want to do washings and, 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 and circumcision? Christ has set you free. You don't have it within your power to set you free. Christ has rescued you. He has set you free. The word means to tear from. It's an interesting word. Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Most people know that verse of scripture. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's used in Stephen's preaching when he's preaching his last message of his life, and he's right before he gets stoned to death. And he quotes the Old Testament Genesis, and he says, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt, but God rescued him out of all his distress and gave him 
favor with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He rescued him out of the dungeon. You remember that story how out of nowhere J, J, uh, Joseph was raised to be the prince of Egypt? Out of nowhere he was, a, he was a prisoner in a dungeon. He was rescued. That's what Christ did for us. He rescued us out of this present evil moral age we live in. Out of this spiritual darkness, the greatest evil of this age is not just our personal sins. It's not just the moral wasteland we live in. Understand something. What made this age so evil is that crucified the Lord of glory. They crucified Christ and now they're trying to distort the gospel. And this is the age that we've been saved from. God has torn us out of this. It was his will that Christ be crushed to tear us away from this present evil age we live in to die for our sins. He rescued us. He came at the nick of time and he stole us away from this present evil age. And what the Judaizers were trying to do was negate this whole work of God, the will of God, that was set forth strong in the Old Testament prophets, clearly stated that the Messiah was going to come and die for the sins of the world. In type and shadow, it was there. And the Judaizers were trying to undermine this whole message of salvation. Eternity hangs in the balance on this message. Paul is so strong in his preaching, his denunciation of what they were trying to do. He pulls no punches on claiming his authority. He pulls no punches on claiming his message. And rightfully so, because eternal life hangs in the balance. There are some things worth fighting for in life. And one of them is... The gospel. This message is worth defending. This message is worth fighting for. This message is worth dying for. This message is worth sharing. Because why you and me are here today is because Paul fought for this message. He would not allow this message of God's will being done in this present evil age to save sinners from their sin by sheer grace. And he fought, and the reason you and me are here today is because he fought for that message, and we continually fight for that message today, day after day after day, because men love to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ to their own means and to their own ends and for their own purposes and agendas. Paul would have nothing to do with it. It was Christ alone, grace alone, and faith alone. And some people just cannot grasp that. It is worth fighting for. Like I said, eternity hangs in the balance. I say this quickly, and this is why, because the rest of this book, this little letter of six chapters, all hang on this rescue. This is what Paul is fighting for. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, he shows his clear apostolic authority to preach this message. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, he defends it from the Old Testament. 
And then chapter 5 and chapter 6, he shows you the practical implications of this message. That being led by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. I don't need the laws of Moses. I don't need the laws of men. You don't need ten commandments. You don't need a hundred commandments. You don't need circumcision. You need the cry of Abba Father when a man comes to Jesus Christ and rescues them from this present evil age and receives the promise of the Holy Spirit. You are born again. You have new desires, new affections for God the Father. You have a desire and a love to please God the Son. And you all do this by the initiating work and grace of the God the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We don't need no additions. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is good enough. It was good enough for Paul. It's what apprehended him on the road to Damascus on that day. Nothing else could have worked. He was more zealous for the traditions of his fathers than anybody else. And the only thing it produced, the only thing the Lord of Moses produced in his heart was become a persecutor of the church. Paul knew what he was fighting for. I call upon everybody here. Has grace changed you so much that you're willing to fight for the gospel? Has it entered into your heart? Are you trying or am I trying or as a church are we trying to please God in any other way than just resting our faith in Christ? We're so used to making laws and rules and regulations Trying to please God. And the worship today, as the worship was going on, it just it overflowed me, it just overwhelmed me as we sung the gospel of God's eternal grace. And it just washed over me, just washed over me. That's what changes us. Let me give you an analogy between religion, the Judaizers, and true salvation in Christ. Sure enough, if someone comes and gives you religion, it cleans you up pretty fast. We can put a suit on you, give you a little name tag, maybe a haircut, new pair of shoes, get you to stop smoking, get you to stop cussing, you know, a couple things, a couple niceties. We can all bow down at the same time. We can all come in. We can all be uniform. It can really look like something's really going on. But the church down the block, all they do is open up the Bible and speak about Jesus Christ and the atonement. And people hear with faith and they receive the Holy Spirit. And as the years go on, they start to really change from the inside out. While the church down the block that's trying to please God through works, nothing's going on in their hearts. There's no change going on because there's no Holy Spirit. They distorted the gospel. You distort the gospel, you distort the Son, you distort salvation, you distort sanctification. You really want to change? We constantly nurture ourselves on Christ. We need to feast on Christ and His atoning work. And what he's doing right now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, as our high priest. When we distort the gospel, we get further and further away from these truths. When we get further and further away from these truths, what happens? We don't change into the image of Christ. What we do, we wrestle with the flesh. We're led by the flesh. We struggle with the world. We struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. We need to keep the plumb line straight when it comes to the gospel. We need to keep it Christ and Christ alone. We need to be Christ and Christ crucified. We need to keep on relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Pastor, how do I get over this? Keep relying on Jesus Christ. Keep on praying. Keep on repenting. Keep on asking God to keep you strong day in and day out. Go before the Lord. Your high priest, he's willing, he's able, he's sympathetic, he's merciful, he's been tempted in every way. What without sin? Go to him. That's the message. 
That is the only message. It's the only message that saves and it's the only message that changes. Nothing else changes the human heart but the message of Jesus Christ and free salvation. That is it. I remember some brothers saying, but I have to do something. He fought me tooth and nail. I have to do something. He listened every week, every Monday. What must I do? I have to do something. So you don't have to do nothing. Believe. It's the way God made it. This is God's economy. Just believe. God will change you. God forgives you. There's nothing yet. No, I have to do something. You know, this is over 15 years ago, and he's still here, so something must be going on. You can talk to him later. He's still trying to figure it out. But I went through this quickly to make these points. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ rescued us. He delivered us. He came and tore us away from this present evil age. By the will of God the Father, understand something. No matter how much a man tries in his human effort, he can never break free of this sinful world. He can't do it. As much as a man tries to reform and transform and change his life from the inside out, he's unable to do it. All the religious rules and regulations, going to church every day of your life, won't do it. But true saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ will save you and eventually start to change you. And we fight for that. And there's a process I want to encourage everybody here. There's spiritual infancy, there's spiritual puberty, there's spiritual adolescence, and there's spiritual maturity. What religion tries to do is make everybody mature real quick. Get circumcised. Everybody be here at the same time. Once a month we worship. In the morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice is the whole mosaic law I'm going through. Along with other food laws, when you eat, wash your hands like this, go through this whole thing, you really look real religious, but at the end of the day, you're nothing. You're still dead in your sins. I'd rather be a spiritual infant, alive in Christ, and all mixed up, than be the most religious person in the world. Amen. I'd rather have a lot of Jesus and not know what's going on, than have all the religion in the world and still going to hell. It makes no difference. Give me Jesus, that's all I need. That's what Paul is protecting here. He's protecting the message of Jesus Christ by the will of God who rescued sinners from their sinful world they live in. Is that a message worth fighting for? Is that the message that saved you? I want you to think about that. Because that's the message that's going to continue to change you and transform you as we go through this letter. And we get more deeper into it, especially the third and fourth chapter to see that Paul makes it clear that no religion at all. I only read a small snapshot of it in chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Nothing can change you. Nothing can transform you. No religious rules, no matter how sincere you are, can make a man right with God. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do it. Only faith rescues us from this present evil world we live in. So understand this as you go home and you read Galatians and you read these six small chapters. 
that Paul is fighting for this very thing. He's fighting for the heart of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he's fighting for. That Jesus Christ came and rescued us by the will of God the Father. Make no question about it. We are fighting for God's heart and saving sinners by sheer grace and faith through Jesus Christ. Period. This is the fight that goes on. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom that Christ set us free for, will start to teach us about how to live a changed life. I ask you today, is there anybody here that wants to live a changed life? Is there anybody here who God's not finished with yet? Understand? Oh, nobody. No hand went up? That sort of scares me. My job is finished. I think maybe I'm in heaven. No one told me I died yet. But on another note, as we can just change subjects... Uh, before we go on with the service. Uh, the elders got together this week and Thursday and we discussed about uh, the hurricane as a church and the disaster and uh, you know where we can help, what we can do, how we can be a part of and uh, so we got together and we discussed a couple of things and we will bring these things forward as the weeks go on. Uh, we went down to Corny Island this week, me and John were there on Saturday, actually yesterday morning, and uh, we helped out one of the other ministries that are down there, John Connors from Horizon, and we hooked up with them and uh, just to get our hands wet and find out what's going on, what kind of help they need and what we can do for them and so on and so forth so we can present it to the church so if anybody wants to truly get involved. Uh, another thing we discussed as a church, as the elders got together, was how we can help financially. And so we know a lot of people want to give and people want to get involved in this. So uh, what we would like to do is that from this week, starting next week, put something in an envelope and just designate it to Sonship uh, Restoration or something like that I have here. What do we wrote? Uh, relief Fund. Sonship Relief Fund. And just designate that besides your tithes and offering. Put that to the side. And we will put that on the side and as... The elders discuss what we're going to do with this. We do have some plans, what we would like to do. Uh, some of those plans are maybe adopt a family or help a family. Personally, we want to be involved in people's lives. We don't want to take money and just give it to an organization. We want to do it. We want to meet people. We want people to meet us because we are the liaisons of Christ. We speak about Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. So we want to believe that God will divinely bring people into our life that we can help financially. We can help in other areas or whatever. So, but there will be more to this as the weeks go on. We don't want to, it, it's going to be a long, long project. I think we all know it. We all see people hurt, family members hurt, uh, friends hurt. We see the devastation everywhere. And so everybody is, has to pitch in. And I think as a church, it would be good for us to come together. We can actually rally around this in a social way. And there's probably a lot we could really do, not just write a check for somebody. That's good. But I think we could do more. We want to give of ourselves. So uh, we will be discussing this. If anybody has ideas, that's cool. This Tuesday, me and Pastor John will be going down to... Uh, uh, Seagate to help out Pastor Connors and his work over there. If anybody wants to come down with us, please let me and John know. We're going down about a quarter to 11, 10.30, a quarter to 11. We spend about three or four hours, maybe five hours. So if you'd like to you know, hook up with us with that, that's great. I'll speak to the men about it tomorrow night. 
If you have any ideas, please bring it to our attention. We don't mind that. You know, we just want to help. This is a long relief effort. This is not going to be no quick fix. The governments only can do so much, and, and that they can write a check, and they can do, and they've been doing a lot of great work in Corning Island. I want you to know something, but we carry something much greater with our check and with our help and with our labor. We carry a message of eternal life. And that is really important. And we're not trying to capitalize on something over here. Understand something. This is opportunity. We're not being capitalistic. As Christians, this is opportunity to go show what Titus teaches us. To be a people redeemed and zealous for good works. So I challenge everybody, financially next week, come and put something in an envelope. And, you know, you can do that every week, every other week. Put your name on it. You know, designate it to Sonship Relief Fund. Uh, we will deal with that and we will let you know how we're doing that and so on and so forth. Okay, we'll keep you up to date as we go on. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for opportunity to going into our neighbors and our friends, God, and uh, this community and helping out in some way, even if in a small way, Father God, that we can make some kind of impact, not just on life or a family, Father God, but on an eternal soul, Lord God. We pray, Father God, for this relief fund. We pray, Father God, that you bless it and that you multiply it, Father God. And that people give generously from their heart, Father God, but that they give of themselves also, God, that we learn to give our time, our efforts, and our energy in the long haul here, Father God. Give us strategies, Father God. Give us grace. Give us strength, Father. And also, Lord, give us wisdom and how to be a neighbor to everybody else in Christ's name.